0: welcome to Scare You to Sleep. I'm your host, Shelby Scott. I hope you're doing well this week. I hope you've had your water. If not, I can wait. Go get it. (laughs) I have a special treat for you all this week. Dark Owl Publishing was kind enough to get into contact with me about author John S. McFarland and John sent me a copy of his book, The Dark Walk Forward, a beautiful and absolutely terrifying collection of stories. It was hard to figure out which one to read to you. So I decided to start with the first story of the book, which actually really, really grabbed me. And why not? I will also be reading one or two more from the book in the weeks to come. But of course, I want you to read the book for yourself. What's unique about The Dark Walk Forward that I found anyway, this is just from my perspective, is that all of the stories are sort of Intertwined in a way, like they have little references to the other stories, even though they all take place in different periods with different people from all walks of life. It's so clear that they're all a part of the same world. It really brings a realism and gravity to each story, which, when it comes to horror, the realer it feels, the scarier it feels. There was one in particular that had me in total shock i'm still debating on whether or not to read that to you or to let you find it for yourself when you read the book they all have a darkness that looms over them that i've never seen over an entire collection john really has a way with atmosphere and you all know how much i love atmosphere (laughs) okay i've gone on long enough so without further ado by author john s mcfarland this is the little Dead thing Abel Edwin Jar, one two eight, Constantinople Street. St. O'deal Mr. George M. Nance, 441 William Street, Pittsburgh November sixteenth, 1922 Thursday George If I can't discover how to heal the wound God has put in my heart to know him, To understand and satisfy my longing for him, and finally feel I am part of his creation. I don't know how I will face the years to come. I'm sorry to make these ravings, or musings, the main part of my letters lately, and perhaps that is why you have not answered me in so long, but I find I can hardly think about anything else. You've heard this before, ever since Fismet. Before the war, I never questioned that I knew the heart and will of God. I knew God kept me apart and disconnected from the world for some reason, which would someday be apparent to me. So arrogant, when you think about it, that any of us can understand the will of God. That day in Fismet, When the Germans finally crossed the river and that boy, that German soldier of maybe 20 years of age who was carrying the flamethrower canister. Remember when the bullet struck the tank and the lad went up in flames. Remember how our boys cheered? It was a spectacle and entertainment. We cheered and laughed. As he, the enemy, screamed in the most horrific and pitiful agony. I aimed my rifle at his head to put an end to his suffering, but I hesitated. He was an enemy soldier, yes, but would not the act of shooting him in that way be something other than the accepted barbarity of war? I knew, as the church says, I would have a murder on my hands, a mercy killing. This boy who may have been raised a Catholic as I was, who only thought he was doing his duty to his country, must die slowly and painfully so that I may not have a mortal sin on my soul. Lieutenant Allen shot him mercifully so his immolation only lasted a few seconds. I killed two men that day. Two I know of. Acceptably, as a protocol of battle. I shot them on the bridge, and they fell into the river. It didn't affect me more than putting my boots on in the morning. They were strangers, objects, targets, the enemy. But that night, I could only think of the burned boy who died in such a different way. I wondered how is the suffering and loss of an enemy, the other, different from ours? Of course, it isn't. An obvious enough proposition, but I didn't really understand it before then. But the war was full of moments like that wasn't it? As we said on our ship home that night, when our time in the 111th was nearly over. War is moments where familiar things became understood in a different way, or understood more deeply. It's that connection that must be made to this world, To all of life, which I have been seeking and turning over in my head for four years. I'm sorry to refer to it so often. One day, I hope to put it out of my mind. With your wife's serious illness, maybe you have had these pointless metaphysical thoughts too. I am glad May is feeling better, per your last letter in March and her consumption was relieved by your trip to Arizona. Perhaps you will move there. I would hope to see you again and to meet her on your way west, if you do. I wish we had been able to do that on your first trip, but there it is. I write to Eustace Kirby, too, as you may remember. He was as near the landing at DeCaster's Island, in my very own town, in June, according to the visitor list in the newspaper, and he he didn't visit me. Eustace Kirby of Bremen Ridge, Pennsylvania, who served with distinction in the one hundred and eleventh Pennsylvania in the recent war, traveling to San Francisco, California with his wife Kate. The Kirbys came by boat, down the Ohio, then up the Mississippi to catch the train to St. Odile and travel north to their connection in St. Louis to continue their journey. I have written him seven or eight times since getting re-established here in St. Odile. He was a few blocks away and chose not to visit me. I am at a loss to understand this, I mentioned in my last letter, also, that my hopes of a future with my Lucy were fading. Her father has never approved of me. She says he wants no veteran of the war for her husband. He suspects that no man who lived through it would be unaffected enough to make a suitable mate for his daughter. He would never trust such a man to be capable of a normal family life after all we experienced. I have asked her for a final answer, asked that she consider only her feelings, not her family's. I am still waiting to hear from her. My work continues at the Assay Laboratory at Osage Lead Company. Mr. Carl, my supervisor, has hired a new technician. Rowalt is his name. He is supposed to be my assistant, and I am to train him to process samples. The young man is concerned with details and organization, and is good enough at arithmetic, so he is learning quickly, as I expected he would. It seemed to me that there were barely enough samples to keep me occupied, as our production as fallen off so drastically since the war, but Carl has insisted that we will be much busier in the future, that there are prosperous times ahead, and we must be prepared. He has said there will soon be a bush to add lead to gasoline, and it will make automobile engines run smoother, and our production will soon increase. However, I was unconvinced by this assertion, and I asked Carl if he is dissatisfied with my work, or has come to dislike me for some reason. But he says I am imagining it. He says I spend too much time imagining plots against myself. I don't know what it is, George, but the town has not accepted me since I returned from the army. Treves has noticed it too, noticed that he is ostracized now, In his case, his injuries have changed his appearance so terribly. Perhaps that is what is behind his situation. His surgery has fallen off to nothing. But as far as I can tell, I am unchanged. Outwardly, at least. But Saint Odile has changed toward me. I am an outsider here. Though I still harbor some concern for him, even Treves seems alien to me. What are the chances that two fellows from a tiny village on the Mississippi should find themselves at the outbreak of a great war, in the same unit, in a Pennsylvania battalion? I would have taken no bet on it. You would think with that great coincidence and the unifying experience of what came after, we would be brothers best friends thereafter but we hardly have two words to say to each other there it is I will close now so that I do not miss the mailman your friend Abel November 17th Friday George I dozed off and missed sending yesterday's letter much has happened today my suspicions were correct carl dismissed me this morning he said my work has suffered recently which i know is not true he said rewalt can replace me very well now and at a lower rate of pay and carl is hiring a friend of rewalt's to be his assistant at an even lower rate there it is dismissed a veteran rewarded for his service I had few personal things to retrieve, collected my seven dollars in wages, and walked the several blocks home to Constantinople Street. It turned much colder overnight, and the wind whipped in front of the river as I made my way home. I have saved forty-two dollars, which might sustain me for a few weeks. But as I walk against the cold wind, I knew I must find other employment quickly, and that this new development will damage my prospects with Lucy even further unless I succeed. As I approached my front gate, I saw the ancient Mrs. Zell, my landlady, on the front walk. With some obvious repulsion, she was examining something on the ground near the porch stairs. She looked up and saw me and waved urgently for me to hurry to her. "'I'll swain, I've never seen such an ugly thing,' she said. She seemed awestruck and unwilling to take her eyes off the thing on the ground. "'What is it?' I could just see part of it behind a boxwood bush. i
1: never seen such a thing. It's some ugly little thing, some little dead
0: thing.'" Mrs. Zell's manner of speaking is to emphasize at least one word in every phrase or sentence. What is that? I wonder how long it's been there. I never noticed until just now. It looks like it's been dead a while, I said. Maybe the cat dragged it here. That prospect seemed unlikely. The creature was not as large as a cat but looked formidable. It was unlike anything I'd ever seen. It was hairless except for a few patches of gray coarse fur near its hindquarters on its feet. It's six feet. It had four paws armed with long curved talons and two sets of hind legs similarly armed. There was a short set of hind legs in front of a longer, more powerful set. The short legs seemed to be vestigial, or perhaps some sort of malformation, because like the forelimbs of the great tyrannosaurus found in the west lately, they seemed to have no practical use. The head of the creature was beyond classification. It had a short, muzzleless face, two bulging eyes, filmy and grey in death, and a round mouth much like a lamp raise, with many needle-like teeth below the weak jaw were two appendages tipped with bony barbs that reminded me of the stinger of a scorpion. Its skin was gray with a bluish tinge, sagging and wrinkled and showing the first stages of decay. It's a chimera, I said, I've never seen such a collection of deformities. What is it? We had many monstrous specimens in jars at the university, but nothing like this. Doesn't have much of a smell, does it? I can't touch it, Mrs. Zell moaned. Please get rid of it for me, Mr. Jar. I wonder if we should notify someone, some county official or... Sheriff, or even one of my old professors at the Carthesian University. I don't want to see it again. Just dispose of it immediately, please. And why are you home from work in the middle of the morning? You may remember my interest in natural history and zoology. It was I who always cared for the war horses when I had the chance and looked after cats and dogs displaced by battle. In school, I loved zoology more than chemistry, my major field of study, but couldn't foresee a way of making a living at it. I could not see myself dumping this horrific and unique creature in a grave or disposing of it in the city dump. I assured Mrs. Zell I would dispose of the dead thing. I went up to my room and found an old lidded laboratory jar with a two-gallon volume I had retrieved from the lab after Carl threw it out. I had a supply of denatured alcohol too, which I had brought home for cleaning and as lamp fuel. I poured about a gallon of this into the jar. In the shed back near the alley, I found a burlap sack and a shovel. From just outside the kitchen window, I could hear Mrs. Zell speaking to her niece on the telephone, telling her the story of the discovery. I slid the shovel under the body of the creature and lifted gently. It was so fragile with putrefaction that the grey skin tore as I lifted, revealing a swarming and disgusting mass of maggots inside. My gorge rose, and I thought I might eject my breakfast on the spot. It seemed odd to me that, with the weather turning colder, the maggots would still be active in the body. But I soon saw a wisp of steam rise from the torn skin, as though the body were still warm inside. As I held the top of the sack open and passed the laden shovel under it, one of the barbs on the creature's jaw scraped below my left thumb. I gently lay the burden inside the sack and I immediately started to notice that the punctured place on my hand was going numb. By the time I lifted the sack off the ground, my left hand had gone completely dead and had become nearly useless. I reckon the barbs deliver some sort of anesthetic or paralytic agent, as some insects and spiders do, which may aid in the killing of its prey. I carried my burden up the front step so Mrs. Zell would not see me. Once in my room, I locked my door and lowered the sack into the jar, which I had placed on my work table. With the shears, I split the sack on both sides of the carcass, and with a little twitching of the sack, the body slipped out. It drifted gracefully into the fluid, tatters of decayed flesh fluttering about it like tiny wings one of the small rear legs fell off and wafted slowly to the bottom of the jar the body settled against the side of the glass its head and left shoulder near the top of the surface of the alcohol and its hindquarters resting on the bottom soon the body and the fluid into which it had been placed were still its filmy eyes seemed to be looking at me By this time, I had begun to notice the feeling returning to my left thumb. I turned my desk chair around and sat in it, looking at the jar. The eyes of the creature still seemed fixed on me. They are an opaque gray-blue. I was struck again at what a chimera the thing was at what impossible biological inheritances had come together so unbelievably and implausibly to create it. Now, at least, it is preserved in its jar and will decompose no more, but remains forever in its present suspended state until I can decipher its mysteries further. I think you will be the only person I tell about this thing, George, at least for now. I will cover the jar with a sheet when I am away. I cover the whole table most of the time, and the Morston girl who cleans up for Mrs. Zell never disturbs the sheet when she's in here. I think there is little chance she will discover my secret. Yours, Abel. November twenty-second, 1922. George. I wonder when you will receive my last letter, and what your response will be. I hope you will respond, as I would like to have your reaction and opinion of the little dead thing. I will try to sketch it today, and include that with this message. The first action of a man displaced from his livelihood is to try to find his next employment in the same field. There is a lime works in St. Othiel, Seraphim Lime it's called. Their offices in Small Laboratory are on Mal Ardent Street. I walked there after mailing Friday's letter. Mr. Arnott, who is in charge of the office and laboratory, agreed to see me, if grudgingly. His office is a glass-walled cubicle, and it was freezing in there. He asked me to sit in an oaken chair opposite his desk. His face was purple and his corduroy vest could scarcely contain his stomach. "'Abel Jar,' he said. "'I have heard of you. "'I am surprised. "'Yes, I am in the Knights of Columbus, "'and one of my brothers there is Mr. Carl, "'your former supervisor. "'Ah,' I felt my prospects here faded suddenly away. I am surprised my name should come up between Lodge Brothers. He mentioned you Friday night, the day he dismissed you. He thought you might come here seeking work. I felt the anger rise inside me, but I did my best to suppress it. So, he was... "'Warning you, then,' I said. "'He said you were not gregarious, not a joiner or a mixer. "'In fact, he said you have an argumentative and disagreeable nature. "'He mentioned you as a free-thinker, an eccentric. "'He and I have had our disagreements. "'I am nervous, high-strung, as my Lieutenant Allen used to say. "'But... I am not an atheist, if that's what you mean by free-thinker, sir. Far from it. I don't see you in church. You're not a Protestant, are you? In which case, you are as good as an atheist. No, I was raised Catholic. I speak to God in my own way, a more personal way. In the war, I started to see God differently than I had before, and I saw... That he wishes me to understand him in a new light, different from the manner in which I was raised. That does sound a little eccentric to me. Arnot stifled a yawn. (sighs) We all need the church, whether we know it or not. Those who think otherwise are mistaken, pure and simple. Isn't up to each of us to interpret scripture. Then everyone would do whatever they wanted. You are a single man, yes? Yes. I I have asked a young lady to marry me, but she hasn't answered me yet. If I get a position, perhaps... Carl told me you were in the 111th, Pennsylvania. How did that come about? There was nothing for me here at the time. I had no family or... I went to Pittsburgh for a new start, to see if I could work in the laboratory of a coal company, but the only job I could get was as a hand-loader, underground, backbreaking work. Then we got into the war. Arnott looked at me as though he either didn't believe my story, or was not the least interested in it. I couldn't tell which. I know you have experience, and I could make a place for you immediately, he finally said. But I have to think about it. It's a small space here to be closed up together all day. I don't like to rock the boat. A different personality can rock the boat. I didn't want to take Carl's word alone about you. I wanted to hear your responses to his assertions for myself. I am a fair man, and as I said, there is work you could do now, but... I don't know. Let me think it over. Your boarding house has a telephone? I will call in a few days if I decide to proceed. Thank you for coming in, Mr. Yara. It had turned much colder in the brief time I had been at Seraphim. The walk home took me past Boyer's butcher shop, and I thought of stopping in to ask if there was any work available there but I argued with Boyer a year ago about some spoiled mutton he sold me, and he has never seemed to like me much since then. And besides, I was anxious to get back to my room to study the creature more and sketch it for you. Before I could get back home, it began to snow. Large, fluffy flakes that quickly blanketed grass, trees, and the brick, stone, and iron fences and gates of St. Odile. I stood on the front porch of the boarding house watching the snowfall. I was transfixed by the look of it, by the beautiful silence. And only when it struck me how cold my face and feet were did I realize I must have been standing there for a very long time. I find that my attention wanders more and more lately, and I often forget what I am about. Back in my room, I uncovered the jar, and for all the world, I could swear that the creature had moved a little. Its head seemed deeper below the surface of the alcohol, and its left forelimb wasn't in the same position as before. Its eyes had seemed to move too, I stared at it in mild disbelief for fully five minutes, but I detected no twitch or tremor. The animal's filmy orb seemed to be looking deeply into my own eyes. As I stood looking down at it on the tablecloth, it was peering directly at me. When I pulled my chair next to the table, sat, and looked again, it was still looking at me. I sat as still as I could for 30 minutes and didn't take my eyes off of it. I saw not the slightest suggestion of movement. I removed my sketching diary from my desk, found a pencil, and started to draw the thing. As I sketched, concentrating on getting just the right curvature of the odd skull, in my peripheral vision, I thought I perceived... The creature twitched slightly. When I looked directly at it, I could see that there was some little disturbance to the liquid in the jar, but saw no sign of change to the creature. The snow continued to fall heavily. There are but a handful of automobiles in St. Odile, and I could hear that one of them had become stuck in a snowbank on the street below. I looked out my window and saw the yellow Packard of Robert Dufresne, half-buried in a drift, tires spinning uselessly. This was the same Dufresne I mentioned in a letter of last spring who objected to my membership in the St. Odile Ethical Union and was solely responsible for my rejected application. He got out of his car and examined his predicament. The solution, of course, was a push. He was in need of someone to push him out. After a second, he glanced upward and saw me looking at him from my window. After a few seconds more, when I was sure he recognized me, I turned and resumed my seat. Did I do the wrong thing, George? It was spitefulness, wasn't it? It was a prideful and vengeful sin, and I wish now I had done otherwise. I heard a rustle of paper behind me. I turned to see that Mrs. Zell or one of her girls had slipped a note under my door. It was from Lucy. It read, Dear Abel, my family has helped me realize that the affection I have felt for you for the past year is more in the nature of friendship than romantic love. I am honored by your proposal of marriage, but given the limitations of my feelings for you, I know it would be a mistake to accept it, one which we would both soon regret. In addition, we have heard of your being terminated from your job, news which further sullies any notion of a comfortable future with you which any woman might entertain. My greatest wish is that you find a lady who can return your feelings in kind. Thank you for your attentions to me and best of luck. Your friend, Lucy." So, there was my answer. I am a poor prospect and it seems she never loved me anyway. I always suspected as much and her note came as no great surprise. Still, it was painful to see it written out like that. I will go for a walk in a little while and try to clear my head or distract my thoughts, whichever seems more appropriate at the time. I sat back down at my desk. I added a few finishing touches to my sketch of the creature Satisfied I had reproduced it accurately, I will include it with this letter and get it in the mail to you. Sincerely, Abel December 4th, 1922 George, it has been so long since I've heard from you. I check the mail anxiously every day and with some excitement, yet nothing comes. Of course, Mrs. Zell knows of my unemployment now. She has said that if I have no new job by the end of this month, she would prefer that I find other lodgings because she has no place for transients, as I will shortly be. No house will take in an unemployed man when I am put out of here, so it is becoming almost certain that I must leave town. Yet, I start every day with more hope than the day proves to warrant. There is expectation of some boon or positive, helpful thing that could happen, but what that could specifically be, I cannot define. All I know is that no such thing does happen. Every day is the same. I awake at 4 or 5 in the morning. I toast some bread and fry an egg for my breakfast and I sit for an hour or more and look at the dead thing in the jar. I still have no notion of what it is or where it fits into nature. I sketched it again and sent that to John Stubbs, one of my zoology professors at Carthesian, but no response yet. He may think I am trying out some practical joke on him, I will need to buy a camera and photograph it. The most striking thing about the creature, I say again, is what an impossible mixture of heritages it is. It defies what little I understand about genetical science. I wonder how intelligent it was. I wonder if it had thought processes of a predator, which are necessarily more complex than those of prey animals. And I wondered where more of the species might be, or if it was the last of its kind. I still own a copy of The Classification of Higher Vertebrates by Hawkins from my undergraduate days, and an antique copy of Compendium Naturalis Mundi by Vandermeet, which I found in a bookseller's stall a few years ago in St. Louis. I found nothing in either of these which in any way corresponds to my creature. I walked to the small St. Odile Public Library on Bucephalus Street, but their sad collection of volumes on natural history also contained no reference or image of anything I could relate to my animal. I hope that Stubbs will take an interest and help me with this. Perhaps my letter will induce him to come look at it, as I can't quite imagine carrying the jar with me on the train. On my way home from the library, I asked for work at the bakery and Broussard's pharmacy, but was given no encouragement from either. Back at home, I clipped tatters of flesh from the creature in three different places and had prepared slides for such a time when I may have access to a microscope and examine them in detail, or send them to Stubbs for examination. I watched the thing and watch it. Sometimes for a moment I am distracted by something, perhaps something I have never noticed before in my surroundings, something unextraordinary elsewhere in my room, like the smoothness of my desktop or the weight of my pocket watch or penknife, or even rereading Lucy's note, and my attention wanders. It is only at those times that I think I notice that the thing moves almost imperceptibly, if there is some spark of life in it and it wishes to deceive me, it is failing at that because I know what I am seeing is real and at night, in my bed when the room is dark, I sometimes think I hear the movement of liquid a slight sloshing sound, but I I can't be sure about that At those moments, it seems there is no other sound in the world, no human activity in the street, no animal noise or boats on the river, nothing but the sound in the jar, that liquid sound. A terror strikes me that if the thing would turn out to be alive, the lid of the jar could not contain it, and in the dark, while I sleep, it could be abroad in the room with me, By the time I get the light on to investigate, there is nothing to be seen. Then, I must take some of my bromide to settle me into sleep again. December 5th. I have started to duplicate everything I have written to you in a journal. I wanted to have my own copy of this experience, otherwise it may be lost. It seems less likely every week that you will ever answer these letters. I should start packing my things, but most days I don't have the energy or concentration to do it. Mrs. Zell hardly speaks to me at all now, except to remind me of what day of the month it is. I told her I have inquired at most of the other boarding houses in town, but they either have no room for me or do not want me. I continue to have no luck in finding any kind of job since my dismissal from Osage led, my reputation has spread across town. An undeserved reputation, an unfair one, I hope. I should consider moving to St. Louis, or maybe back to Pittsburgh. The society of this little town is closed and unwelcoming. Humans are social creatures, and when an individual is ostracized by his group and cast out, it leaves an emptiness in his soul which defies description. There is no more certain way to kill a man than that, I think. I have a little more than $30 to my name. Yes, I should begin packing, but sometimes I don't think I move for hours at a stretch. From time to time, I wonder if I should go out or stay in. I ask myself where I would go if I went out. If I went out, I would pass men in the streets who have wives and families, friends and co-workers. Yes, they have all of those gifts from above. They have a place in the order of things, the clear and well understood blessing of God. I will not have my Lucy nor anyone else, most likely. No, it seems to me now. But none of those men have what I have. None of them have this secret. I stare for hours at the thing in the jar because now I know. I am sure it must be watching me. I want to see... It moved directly, not suspect it has moved. I want to know unambiguously that there is some little glimmer of life in it. I possess this thing. I have a connection to it, and no one else on earth may say that. If my prospects are few and unpromising, maybe there is some way I can exploit that connection or use it to secure some livelihood, some sort of future for myself. This creature was put in front of me for a reason, surely. Finding it, classifying it, and describing it to the world is obviously what I meant to do. Most of the time, I am certain of this. Other times, I am not so sure. Maybe exploitation of this animal would be wrong. I am a private man. Maybe God put it in my way because I am so private. Maybe God's plan for me, in his creation, has always been with regard to this creature. It is so hard to know what God wants. Why would this responsibility be given to me? The only reason I can imagine is that this is the answer I have been seeking these four years. I just have to understand it. I will go to sleep now. The silence is what is so oppressive. Any little sound can become frightening, can seem to be a threat or be distorted by my imagination. Did I hear the lid of the jar move? Did I hear the movement of liquid? If I hear activity on the street or the sounds of other people in the house, the troubling sound is masked or hidden. There's nothing of that now. So I try to sleep so I will hear nothing that will unsettle me. Tomorrow, I will pawn anything I still have which may be of value and pack my things. I will buy a train ticket to St. Louis. It appears I must go to St. Louis. later. This morning I carried a bundle of things with me to Lahaye's pawn shop on Rowan Street, close by. I took some trouble to bring some lidded jars and an old burner and even my copy of Vandermeet, which I thought might be of some value. Lahaye scowled and studied the things and in the end refused to buy anything I had brought. Now what am I to do? I will soon have no place to live and no means of establishing myself elsewhere." Afternoon. George. The creature moved. Just as I was awakening from a nap, I saw it clearly and without a doubt. It twitched and some white particles floated up from the tear in its skin. A stab of terror shot through my stomach as I watched it floating in its liquid until the ripples of the jar subsided. Slowly, I got out of my bed and approached it. Now, its filmy eye did not seem to be watching me, but only staring vacantly at the wall behind me. As I neared the jar, I could see that the white particles which had floated up from the tear in the creature's skin was bitten off fragments of the maggots I had seen inside it the day I recovered it from under the bush. Slowly and carefully, I lifted the heavy lid from the jar and looked down at the thing inside. I looked into the torn flesh of the bat. The tissue inside, it was nondescript blue-gray confusion of subcutaneous fat and muscle and collapsing gray blood vessels. But something else beyond these caught my attention. It was a familiar shape, but one I could not quite define or make sense of. Suddenly, the shape quivered and slid downward across a glistening and awakening orb was an eyelid, blinking across a yellow, sensitive eye. I withdrew in horror and disgust across the room from the thing. I stood at my window, looking back at it, trying to understand what I had seen. I was breathing frantically. I tried to steady myself. After a few moments, I approached the table again, slowly and tentatively. I looked down into the jar. The tear in the dead creature's skin was a little whiter and cleaner now, and I could see that this was so because the smaller one inside had eaten away the edges of the wound. Shivering with revulsion, I looked at it, and in a moment, its minute wriggling and writhing to feed revealed that it was an immature version of the dead thing, which had served as its host. I clapped the lid back on the jar and withdrew again to my window. I sat at my desk, never taking my eyes off the jar. This was the creature's nature. It reproduced itself by growing an embryo inside which slowly consumed the host body of the mother, a type of matrophagy, as some spiders practice. Or perhaps this carcass was the father, and the fertilized zygote is placed within him while he is alive, to grow, as is seen in some marine animals, I believe. The males in nature are usually more disposable than females. This conjecture makes the most sense to me. And the growing fetus must be anaerobic if circumstances warrant even after it is viable. Otherwise, it could... Never survive in the alcohol. A knock at my door.
1: Mr. Jar.
0: It was Mrs. Zell.
1: I have a letter here for you just arrived. She pushed it under the door. And Mr. Jar, I have a young lady coming up from Cape Girardo on Monday. Miss Connolly is her name. She is to be the new housekeeper at the rectory. I want her to have this room. I would be obliged if you could be out by the weekend. But I I was counting on having the full month, Mrs. Zell. We rent by the week, Mr. Jar. I can put you out at my discretion. By the weekend, if you please. I need more time, Mrs. Zell. I have nowhere to go. To be honest, Mr. Jar, I regretted bringing you in here almost immediately. You have always been an ill fit. I don't know why you would want to stay in a house, or a town for that matter, where you weren't wanted. I shouldn't repeat this, but now I hear from Mrs. LaHay that you have tried to sell goods to her husband, which were obviously from your last employer she believes mr. Carl has pressed a complaint against you and the sheriff has a warrant for your arrest which You will execute when he returns from that shooting business on DeCastor's Island in a day or two. Perhaps I shouldn't have mentioned it, but I have always spoke plainly, and you are hardly in a position to run away from the justice awaiting you, and I suppose you have a right to know. I will have no undesirables in my house.
0: I am to be arrested? The old woman's words were like a judgment from heaven. It was like that moment on the transport ship when we realized that the war made us understand everything in a new way. The entire town wants me gone, and I have no means to go elsewhere. So, what will I do? There was a slight sloshing around in the jar. I could see the gray, slippery body of the dead thing twitch a little as the offspring inside it fed. I arose and went to my door, picking up the letter Mrs. Zell had pushed under it. It was from Professor Stubbs at Carthesian. It said, "Mr. Jar, you claim." to have been in a vertebrate zoology class of mine some ten years ago, but I have no memory of you. Your letter is obviously a hoax as the creature you describe is a biological impossibility as someone with a true knowledge of natural history would certainly know. Please find better ways to occupy your time than by dreaming up nonsense to waste the time of persons more productive than yourself. Signed, J. S. So, there it is, George. I am soon to be homeless or arrested, and I have no prospects but to take this thing in its jar and try to show some scientific or academic person that it is real and I have made a great discovery but who will listen? I am exhausted. I must rest. December 7th. George, this will be my last letter. I will leave it on my table for Mrs. Zell to find. And what else will she find? I am not well. I am not strong, but I am content. I feel such peace now. I am holding a towel to my face as I write. My face is numb, but bloody, covered in blood. I slept a deep, undrugged sleep last night. I scarcely moved all night and only awoke ten minutes ago. As I started to awaken, I noticed that the lower half of my face was numb, completely without feeling. There was a small weight on my chest and neck. As my eyes slowly focused, I was horrified to see the young creature from the jar sitting on my chest just at the collarbone. Its dark eyes watched me indifferently. Its small body was a perfect copy of its dead parent, except it had more fur. Its mouth and face were covered in blood, my blood. It had deadened my mouth and face with its stingers. I gasped and choked on the blood I inhaled with the breath. I jumped out of my bed and saw that the mattress was splattered in red. The little thing fell to the floor with a soft, flopping thud and seemed unhurt and unperturbed. I pressed myself to the wall and moved away from it to my front door. I opened the door, and looking out into the hallway, I could see no one was about. Mrs. Zell was probably downstairs, and it was too early for the Morston girl to come and clean. I slipped down the hallway to the lavatory and turned on the light. My horror. I saw that my lips had been eaten away in a ragged pattern, revealing bloody teeth within. A little cry escaped my tattered mouth, spattering blood on the mirror. At first, I could not think of what to do. I could not think of calling Mrs. Zell or returning to my room. After a few minutes, I made my way back down the hallway to my door. My fear and sense of revulsion had suddenly subsided. Now I could not define how I was feeling, except to say there was no panic. I was suddenly calm and clear headed. I opened my door and edged into my room The little creature was still where it had fallen, and seemed completely oblivious to me. I watched it for many minutes. It was cleaning the blood from the edges of its mouth. It seemed so purposeful and focused on its natural function, on the undoubted, perfect fulfillment of its nature. Its God-ordained purpose As the Bible says, I don't know if I smiled at it or not as I peacefully watched it. If I did, it would not have been recognizable as a smile. I locked my door and braced my one dining chair against the knob. I sat at my desk and wrote this account for you. This action, this perfect, natural action, had begun and I must not interfere with it. I am filled with the love of God at this moment, and so grateful for his blessing. George, my friend, or one whom I once thought of that way, a deep, deep sleep is what I needed, and I may better comply with my part in this. My bromide powder is on the table. Thanks for listening. Thank you again to Dark Owl Publishing and to John S. McFarland for sending me a copy and allowing me to read this stunning book. If you liked the mood from this story, then you will definitely love the entire book. I highly recommend picking up a copy. Seriously, I just, it's hard to explain how this beautiful darkness penetrates every single story in such a unique way. Like, reading this one and listening to this one, you think you're going to know kind of the vibe of the next one. You don't. You don't. I promise you don't. You know the feeling, it's going to be the same gloominess, but it's not the same story whatsoever. And you will stop, some of them make you angry, some of the stories make you sad, some of the stories make you want to sleep with the lights on. But they all have this, I can't really put my finger on it, what it is that connects them all. And then, honestly, even in this one, there were references to other stories, but you just didn't catch them because you haven't read the whole book. This is a book I will probably read a couple of times so I can read or catch every single little reference. It's really amazing. It's interesting. I don't know how he kept up with all these little strings attached to each story because they're very small little things that really get your attention and you're like, oh my God, this was going on at this time and that was happening then. This person was mentioned in that story, but as like a throwaway character as someone's cousin. It's just... It's amazing. It's really well-written. I am so happy and so grateful to have received it. Um, Go follow the show on Twitter, um, Instagram. Join the Facebook page. Please, please, please answer the Facebook questions. Uh, It just makes it easier. We're really starting to... The group is growing a lot. We're at about 3,000 people right now. So we're really trying to keep all the, you know, just... Uh, I don't know, like bots and people selling Avon out. I don't know. (laughs) God, I just dated myself, didn't I? Wow. Um, Please tell your friends about the show. I would love to keep working with Spotify, and I would love it if they renewed my contract. So please help me grow the show. Help the show be great so I can keep giving you this quality of story and bringing you these cool, like, books and stuff. So, yeah. Anyway, um... Go get some sleep and sweet dreams.